Seems like nobody likes to work in December, but we're still ticking. Uh, today we take a look back at the last few months and what lies ahead in a World Cup year 2019. Fast approaching. This is the last ARN podcast of 2018 coming at you. Happy December, everyone. I'm Brian Ray of America's Rugby News. This is going to be our last show of the year. There's a few reasons for that, but part of it is that it's just not easy to connect with guests and get prepared on short notice. We've kind of rushed into this whole thing, so we're going to use the time to to line up some people for January so we can get on a, a more consistent schedule, looking at Wednesday, maybe Thursday morning release time. So we'll, we'll try to get that figured out and maybe iron out a, a couple technical issues along the way as well. If you have any requests or suggestions about the format, uh, uh, feel free to comment on the website or hit me up on Twitter at Ray's Rugby, R-A-Y-S Rugby, or send a telegram, you know, whatever you want to do. Uh, looking back on the week that was the last big international of the year, Argentina lost to the Barbarians 38-35. The Pumas were up 28-7 at one point and, and then collapsed again. So we'll discuss that in more detail a bit later, but a big weekend on the seven circuit in Dubai. Really good tournament for both women's teams. Canada second place, fourth place for the USA. For Canada, there's still a bit of a mental hurdle against New Zealand. They lost the cup final. I mean, you can't take anything away from, from them. They're a brilliant side, tremendous athletes. Sarah Goss, Portia Woodman, Gail Broughton, Michaela Blyde, etc. But, you know, Canada also has some world-class players too. Bianca Ferrella, Britt Ben, both making the dream team. You know, either would be a, a good choice if you're voting for player of the year. One of these days, they're going to get a result, and it's just going to take mistake-free rugby to get it done. So I'm hopeful we'll see that coming in the new year. The USA also playing really well to start the series. Fourth place for them. Lauren Doyle made the dream team. I thought Elif Kelter was outstanding as usual. The, the important thing for them is to keep that top four success rolling. Even a couple more tournaments might be enough. I, you know, uh, they're now in third overall, but they're they're already ten points ahead of fifth place France. So you know that's hugely promising. Of course, the top four get automatic qualification for the Olympics. So that's why this is so important. Canada are in second place, just two points ahead. Really good signs for North America's women's sevens teams. The men, well, you know, what can you say about the Eagles? The results speak for themselves, really. Uh, you know, I saw the quarterfinal matchups and I was concerned, but what a win over Fiji. Uh, here's Perry Baker talking about that performance. It was just had to fight hard, man. Uh, we know Fiji's a top team. Those guys fight down to the clock, say 0-0 and some, whenever there's extra time. So we just came out together, man. It was hard for us in the morning because we started so flat. Like, we wasn't there, and that just shows the type of team that we can be. When these guys can dig together, we all can come as one and just fight for each other. So I can't be more happier with that performance and with that win to go to the semis. First two games, we was talking about communication, and then come in for the last game. At the end of the day, we talked about not being communicating, not being in sync and being direct. In this game, we wanted to just keep our comms going and be direct with what we chose to do. And then the win over Australia. Full out Niua catches them napping a bit on that quick tap, and you're never going to stop Danny Barrett from that close. Uh, you know, they came up short against New Zealand, who looked like they're back on track. I mean, obviously they they won the World Cup, but 
but they really hadn't looked like killers for the past three or four years, so they have got their swagger again. South Africa had a rough go. They finished sixth. A few of their guys have left to play 15s. Roscoe Speckman will actually play in his final tournament this weekend, so they're in kind of a rebuilding mode maybe. Canada finishes in 11th spot. Uh, not really a big surprise given they've only had a couple weeks of preparation before that. You know, I think everyone, Rugby Canada and the players inclusive, have to kind of take that one on the chin. But I don't think too many people were really expecting a top four season anyway. So really the focus now is maybe top 10, maybe try and get up one spot from last year, which be, you know, maybe eighth spot would give them some confidence heading into the Olympic qualifiers. But, you know, remember, all Canadians should really be getting behind the men's Eagles as well, because if they finish in the top four this season... It means Canada will be overwhelming favorites to qualify at the Rugby America's North Tournament, and they won't even have to go through the repechage that they had to attempt last time. So, you know, the bottom line is things are looking up for Canada's men's team, even if 11th doesn't sound so hot. Uh, great to see Adam Zaruba back, and, and congrats to Cooper Coates, who got the call this week. He's headed to Cape Town, replacing Lucas Hammond, who was injured in Dubai. This is Cooper's first selection to uh, senior international representation. He played for Canada under 18 uh, a few years ago. Of course, we wish Lucas Hammond a speedy recovery. Hopefully he's good to go uh, in Hamilton, New Zealand at the end of January. Las Pumas finished 8th. They got a big win over South Africa on day one, but then didn't show up at all against Australia in the quarterfinal. This is a bit of a theme in Argentine rugby right now, and getting that consistency of performance is a problem that they need to solve. Uh, Marcos Moroni, though, he played really well. He made the dream team, and actually he was the, the only America's player to make the dream team. You know, we've seen some interesting selections in the past. They're picked by the broadcasters, and... Perry Baker didn't make the overall dream team last year, but somehow was World Rugby Player of the Year. Maybe the World Cup boosted him or something. But this time, the Eagles make the final, and not a single player gets picked for the dream team. I mean, I don't know how Baker didn't make it this time. but Well, only one New Zealander as well. So, you know, the two finalist teams only contribute one player. I don't know. Beats me. Kind of weird. Uh, congrats to Andre Zafra who became the first Colombian to score a try in the top 14. He charged down Rory, Rory Cockett's uh, box kick attempt to, to score the game winner for Ajan against Castro. We, you know, we saw Sudamerica 15 play against Chile and Paraguay a few weeks ago. I'd love to see them go on tour somewhere, you know, even to, to North America, play a couple MLR sides in the preseason like Uruguay did, you know, get the best guys from Colombia, Paraguay, Venezuela, Chile, Uruguay, Guys who wouldn't normally get a chance to play those kinds of games. Maybe draft in a couple of Mexico players, you know, just an idea. I don't know. I think that would I think that'd be fun to see that. Um speaking of South America, the under eighteen men's finals in Asuncion. Argentina, the winners, no surprise there, but they only just barely beat Uruguay. Uh five nothing the final score. Paraguay, perhaps the most notable results. They beat Brazil 25-19, and they only lost to Uruguay by five points. I think it was 13-8, so some talent really coming through the ranks there. Uh, Major League Rugby. Rugby United New York versus the New England Free Jacks in Boston. The Cold War. Entertaining game, not quite MLR standard, but a chance for lots of new guys to get a run. Uh, Simu Smith. He's new to me. I thought he was very impressive outside center for New York. Uh, I thought the uh, New England halfbacks did well. Eric Thompson, tight leader. 
So they'll be a decent side in a year's time. It'll be interesting to see how the Free Jacks do against the Irish provincial development sides on the way in March. Uh, that'll be a fun series. Uh, first glimpse of Paddy Ryan with New York. Good to see him back. Uh, he was out with injury, played a couple games for Austin Elite. Uh, he scored a try, had a big impression in the scrum. You know, he's he's a guy I'm sure the Eagles will keep it, be keeping a keen eye on, just if nothing else for that ability in the scrum. Some other other uh, MLR moves. Dan Moore to the Arrows, really good signing for them. Uh, Chris Matina to New York. Uh, a few other guys on the way there soon as well. Look for maybe three overseas front rowers to join up. I think one of them played age-grade rugby for Ireland. Um, Utah, still not talking to anyone, but we've got a few names uh, that will be playing for them in, in, in training right now. Huluholo Moungaloa. He's the Eagles loose head from the ARC. Uh, he's going to play for them. Had to happen, really, to get himself back in World Cup contention. Uh, Alex Forster, uh, he's back at hooker. Logan Daniels, he's another hooker uh, coming in from New Zealand. I'm assuming he's uh, related to Alf Daniels, the coach. Uh, the missile, Jeremy Misailagalu, is in camp with them right now. He didn't really fire, uh, to use a pun there, with the, with the Seawolves, so... Interested to see if he can kick on with the Warriors. Patheli Rinakama moving from NOLA. He can play fly half, can play outside backs. We'll see where he fits there. And Ian Luciano, the uh, the Free Jack scrum half. So some some handy additions. I'm sure there are some others that we don't know about yet. Austin have confirmed Sebastian Calm. I'm a big fan of him. And, and Juan Echeverria, the Uruguayan prop, finally. Um, guys they haven't talked about yet, but who are already in training. Penny Tangive, a big, strong winger. Excited to see how he goes. I think the Eagles could benefit from a pure finisher out wide, so I'm sure Gary Gold will be watching him. Uh, a couple South Africans, Dylan Peters, who's a, a lock with Curry Cup experience, and Tian Erasmus is a hooker. Uh, Sohel Jaudat, who is a Moroccan international. He's a speedy outside back. And Dom Bailey, a physical specimen back rower, probably looking at open side flanker maybe, who played for Davenport and the Chicago Lions. So I'm getting pretty excited for the MLR season. It's going to be a lot of work, but I just love seeing the new names and hopefully the rugby steps up a level this year. I'm sure it will. You know, it's a, it's been a great year for American rugby, really, and, and particularly for the Eagles, who, uh, you know, their success has really driven interest in the game on this side of the pond. So I wanted to get someone on here to talk about that and uh, in depth. And, and our guest today has a really good idea of what's going on because he's been there. Uh, he's been one of the first names on the team sheet, really, for the past couple of years now. So Nick Savetta joins us from his place in Doncaster in the United Kingdom. So Nick, thanks for joining us after after a whirlwind month uh, and year, really. Uh, is it nice to be back at home base to kind of kick up your feet a bit? Well, maybe the question should be, do you get any time to unwind or are you straight back into training? Um, I actually got lucky they gave me a week off last week. Not, not from training necessarily, but uh, from a game. So I did get a little bit of time to unwind after the tour, which is always good. But um, basically straight back into it. We got game this week, game next week, um, and then a week without a game, but we'll still be training. So for the guys who play over in Europe, it's typically you're lucky if you get a week off. If not, you're straight back into it. So it is tough. Kind of the, the life of a professional, I guess, international. Um, you know, if you're not playing for England, I guess. But uh, so 
you know, the, the amazing winning streak is over for the Eagles, but it was still a pretty decent November. First test win over Samoa, a uh, pretty dominant performance against Romania, uh, tough games against the Maori in, in Ireland. But looking at it as a whole, is the team satisfied with those results? Uh, for the most part, I'd, I'd say we are. I mean, we accomplished our goal. I mean, we won the two, the two test matches that we'd set our sights on winning, uh, which were Romania and, and Samoa. I think we're a little disappointed about how the second half of the Ireland game went. Um, I think we, we, we really took it to them in the first half, but had trouble sticking around. Um, but beyond that, you know, I think we keep on growing as a team. It was hard to play the Maori when, when you don't have, what, seven, eight of your, your, your European players with you, and the squad sort of, uh, you know, sort of jumbled together. But, uh, yeah, definitely some huge positives to come out of that tour. You know, we're happy with those results, and... Uh, we're 12th in the world now, which is the highest ranking we've ever been. So yeah, definitely, definitely a huge positive. So, I mean, looking at that match, the Ireland match specifically, you were talking about the uh, being pleased with the first half. You know, even though going into the game, you get nine test wins in a row. But realistically, I mean, it, even a second string Ireland on their home turf was a pretty big jump, massive jump really in competition yeah. between, you know, Romania the week before. You know, mm-hmm. what were the team's ex- expectations going into that game? Um, well, Gary was pretty specific. You know, he, he thought if we did certain things well and we, we stuck to our game plan, that we we put ourselves in a position to win the game. So that wasn't out of the question for us. But you know, it is a tough task. The Aviva is a very difficult place to play, um, and that's you know, Ireland has got it figured out right now. You know, they probably have three or four sides they could put out at an international level that could compete with almost anybody. Um, so they're a very tough ask at home, um, and they they took it to us. You had that big high of, of the Scotland win in June. This match, a very different result to it to end the year. You know, is it, you know, is 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 the team really disappointed in that? I mean, or is it, or do you, do you take a lot of positives from the first half, which was very competitive? I mean, the game was really pretty close until Big Joe got knocked out there, and then it just kind of seemed like the game slipped away a bit at the end. So, I mean, what was the overall reaction to that loss in Dublin? Uh, I think the the year obviously has been hugely positive. Um, in general, I think we're happy with a lot of the things we did in that game. I think, you know, for the most part, we stuck with them in the scrums. Our set piece, our lineup was really, really good. Um, we, we defended for long periods in that game and defended well. I mean, there were a lot of positives. Um, you know, I, I think it's a good thing to build on, and it's it's definitely the type of competition we need to play looking at the next year um, in the World Cup, obviously, in nine months. You mentioned the lineout. Uh, you've been in a, a constant in the side this year. You've had, you know, Nate Brakeley, Ben Landry, Samu Manoa packing down with you uh, for the past three games. You formed a pretty effective partnership with Greg Peterson. Uh, one thing that did really stood out for for me, kind of th- throughout the whole year, was the lineout and that connection between you know Joe and yourself, or Greg or Cam Dolan has been very reliable this year. Obviously, the, you know the height helps, but are, are you approaching that any differently this year? Is it simply a matter of repetition at training? Uh, no, we, we, we sort of you know since since Sean's been involved, we, we've had the same principles in place, um, and I think as a group. You know, especially with something like a line-out where you're trying to get seven, eight guys to work together. It's a bit of a dance. Like, the more you do it, the better you get at it. Um, and we have good principles in place. We try to replicate, you know, what we want to do on game day and training. And we've had a lot of success. You know, it helps when you have, you know, Cam, who's an excellent jumper, Greg, who's an excellent jumper, and, you know, Joe and Dylan and, and Jimmy, who throw, throw a great dart. So um, I think, uh, you know, we built a good system and, you know, it's working right now, and we just just got to keep you know one step ahead of our opponents. 
So, I mean, that's kind of your bread and butter is the, the line out. Is that something, you know, you spend a lot of time, you take a lot of, of pride on, is that kind of your area of, of expertise within the side? Um, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, I think that's a big part of my game. Um, I think, you know, when, when you're a bit slow, a bit lanky, a bit goofy, you got to find something that's like your, you know, your bread and butter. And that, that's become the line out for me. And I spend a lot of time you know, studying it and, you know, obviously Cam and Greg and the other guys, you know, they, they do a lot of work as well. And it, it only works if, if everyone puts in their, their two cents. But, you know, that's where I think I can make my biggest contribution to the side is is at set-piece time. Now, I can't imagine you play against many locks who are taller. I can think of, you know, maybe Will Carrick-Smith at Bedford in the championship. Um, were you disappointed that Devin Toner wasn't playing for Ireland? <laughs> I was disappointed, yeah. Well, I played, with, I played against him last time. We played Ireland in New York, um, and we swapped jerseys, which is great. And I have a picture with him where he's absolutely dwarfing me. Uh, <laughs> I, I respect him so much as a player. He's he's a massive guy. He's a bit goofy, you know, kind of like myself. But he puts in such a big shift every game, and he's he's a very good lineout caller as well. Um, so I try to replicate a lot of things he does with his game. Yeah, actually, quite a few similarities between both of your styles and the way you've both kind of uh, evolved both similarly in the, in the careers, kind of him kind of getting into Ireland later in his career is uh, same similar to yourself with the Eagles. Um, but you also did some pretty good work with, with ball in hand this year. There's, there's a moment in the Romania match where you're in a five meter scrum in your own end and the scrum is starting to break up and somehow you peel out with the ball as if you're a number eight. What, what happened there? I, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> do, do you think that the referee confused you for Cam Dolan? Uh, there could have been a little bit of that, you know. I, I, you know, the best, you know. I just sometimes you just got to play footy, and you got to do what you got to do. Uh, I don't know how I ended up with the ball. You know, you could argue that maybe it was out, maybe I kicked it out and then picked it up, but probably not. But what it you're worked. saying so is right well. I watched it back, and he was staring right at me, so he must uh, he must not have had a problem with it. That <laughs> was a pretty pretty funny moment uh, in that game. Um, uh, but you're, you're carrying, as I said, it's, it's, it's come along quite a bit this year. We saw some, yeah. not only in that Romania game, some good carries, but, you know, for instance, that, that nice little run in the offload to, to Blaine Scully at the end of the, the Russia game. Is that something you've been consciously working on in training? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, you get better at things like that uh, by playing a lot. Um, and since I've been playing a lot of Doncaster, you know, my carrying's improved. Uh, the quality of my rucks have improved. Uh, my tackling's improved as well, I think. The good thing about the championship as a league is it's not necessarily the fastest rugby in the world, but it is really physical. So you, know, you can work you can work on your footwork into contact, and then while you're in contact, it's you know it's a violent collision. Uh, so I think I've, I've I've gained a lot from from playing in the championship. So when you first came into the side, it was under uh, under John Mitchell. Certainly, we saw some improvement uh, in the team under him. But it's hard not to notice that Gary Gold has really taken this team to a new level. Uh, one thing we've seen, I guess, is consistency. So uh, you know, earlier this year, you spoke about following up on big performances. You got the win over Scotland, and then in Halifax, the team you know maybe wasn't quite at their best against Canada, but they still came away with the with the big results. So um, what's the different? What's different now under Gary that was maybe missing before? Um, I mean, he's been really consistent with his selections, and I think uh, people underestimate how important that is because you don't really get a lot of time together as a as an international side, especially as a, you know as you know the states. I wouldn't say tier two, but you know as a, a second level international side. And uh, I, I think he's 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 done a really good job of of saying the right things each week. You know, he's he's really tapped into the American psyche of the team, which I think is really important. 
you know, Americans, you know, we love a bit of inspirational speech and we love, um, you know, really positive attitude. And, and he brings that every week, um, and we respond really well to it. Um, so I think those are those are two main things. He's really got the guys behind you, behind him, and you know, we we love him because we can tell that he's putting everything into the team, and we want to get everything out of it. Does that consistency in selection kind of give players confidence, knowing that you know as long as they live up to their standards, they're going to be in the team next week, and kind of they know where, where they're standing at all times? Is that that has to be a good thing for the team psyche? Um, yeah, I think it helps. I think it helps. Um, obviously, there's a massive expectation on everyone to perform well every weekend. Um, so, I mean, there still are, you know, you still got to play well. Um, and it gets easier to play well when you're playing with the same guys every week. So I, I think it has added to, to the guys' confidence, um, definitely. I mean, you see a guy like Paul Mullen who came into the squad last summer having played almost no high-level rugby in his life, and now he's you know, six, with six starts back-to-back with the state seven, you include the Maori game. Um, and he's you know getting better every game, so I mean you know you you can see it has a, a huge effect on guys. So for you yourself, you're a bit of a latecomer to the sport. You started at 18 at, at Notre Dame, actually. Before that, if I understand correctly, you played a bit of football in high school and and some wrestling. So I mean, yeah. football seems pretty natural for a, a big body, but you don't really see many wrestlers even at heavyweight above six three, you know, maybe six four. Those. Those long limbs must have been pretty big targets. So how did that work out for you? Oh man, I was like a spider. I was just uh, no muscle on me, and six five, maybe two hundred fifteen pounds, just uh, trying to wrap my arms around guys. My best move was like a cradle. Um, I actually say it was probably my the sport you know I had the most success in before I found rugby. Uh, I wasn't I wasn't a very good football player. I didn't enjoy lifting weights or working hard, but I, I really enjoyed. Um, like the one-to-one combat that you got in wrestling. Yeah, I, I absolutely love the sport, and I think it, it definitely contributed to um, some early success in rugby because you know, the work you do with your you know, knowing how to move people, getting your body in the right position. Um, yeah, it's definitely, definitely, definitely more helpful, I think, than football for me going into rugby. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, normally we see that in, in like props, like Georgia, for instance. Those guys are renowned. Their props have all been grown up on on Greco-Roman wrestling and so on. So normally we see that from that. Maybe not so many of their, you know, skyscraping second rows. But so you broke into the side November two thousand sixteen. You've basically been in ever present uh, since eighteen caps all starts. Um, you know, considering. You know, not not only your late start to the sport, but your first Eagles game didn't come until it was actually your 27th birthday against the Maori. Uh, do you have to pinch yourself sometimes, knowing the amount of work that it took to get here? Yeah, every week, man, every week. Uh, and I'm incredibly grateful for the last two years. Um, and I wouldn't change my journey at all for the world because you know there's, you know, uh, like, yeah, I guess, um, yeah, I pinch myself all the time. You have to be a little bit lucky and in professional sport and I was able to, to get out of my three years of Italy and end up in a great place like Newcastle. So, I mean, that was the springboard for the start of my, my professional career. And yeah, you know, every time you get an opportunity to play for your country, I know everyone says this all the time, but it, it is incredibly special and it is a totally different feeling than playing for anybody else. So, um, you know, when you have that opportunity, you want to grab it and you don't want to let it go. So just going to try to keep on doing that as best I can. Talking about your, your time in Italy, looking back, you know, I first saw you play the, it was the 2012 America's Rugby Championship, the old A-side version of it. And 
you were a collegiate All-American, and but then you kind of, you know, you, you fell off the radar kind of for a bit in the, in the selection uh, department. You three years in Italy before you, you got picked up at, at Newcastle. So uh, what was it, what was the difference? What got you back into consideration? Was it just, you know, time and experience or was there some kind of a shift in the way you approached the game? Um, I think it's a bit of both. You know, I'd be the first person to tell you that in 2012, I wasn't ready at all for international rugby. You know, I wasn't fast enough, wasn't strong enough. Probably a bit soft, definitely a bit soft, I think. And I think I needed some time to, to harden up and to learn how to play, you know, a good standard of rugby week in and week out. Um, and Italy definitely helped with uh, the hardening up portion. Um, and, yeah, I mean, like I don't – I definitely didn't deserve to be in the side in 2012, and I knew I needed to go away and work on it. I just didn't expect it to take, you know, almost four years to, to get myself to a point where I knew I could come in and I knew I could play for international rugby. So, I mean, you'll be 30 next year. Uh, do you, how much longer do you see yourself playing professionally? I mean, because you've had kind of a late start, it's almost like your body doesn't quite have the same wear and tear. Or do you feel that you've made up for that? Have you made up for lost time? Do you feel like your body can still hang in for a little while? Um, I'd like to think so. You know, I go back and forth about it. You, know, you play a game and then Monday and Tuesday you're feeling horrible. Um, and you're thinking like, oh, maybe this is my last year. Maybe, you know, maybe I'll call it quits. But you know, I'd love to, you know, hopefully have success in the, in the coming year, end up at the World Cup, and then see what happens after that. You know, I'd like to, you know, hopefully spend maybe another two, three years playing professionally. Um, but you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to drag out my career. I don't want to be still doing this when I'm 37, 38. So it'll probably be the next couple of years when I call it quits. So I know uh, uh, you have an Italian passport. Did you speak Italian before you went over there to play? Uh, no. So I, I studied Spanish in high school, um, and that helped. And then when I was over there, I was living with Italians and getting coached in Italian. So I, I picked it up over the course of my, my three years there. Definitely, uh, so like one of my the favorite, one of the best things I learned over there was was you know a new language. Was everybody over there calling you Nick Civetta? Isn't that how they say it in Italian? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's now I, you know, I, I catch myself saying that sometimes because that's just the way it's pronounced over there. You know, I have to get corrected by my own family. We're a bunch of New York Italians, and they say, "No, no, it's Savetta." You know, you got to say it the way we say it. So, <laughs> so uh, a, a couple of years with the, with the Newcastle Falcons, you know, obviously uh, a great learning experience. But was it frustrating at all not really getting much of a shot in the first team? Yeah, I mean, it was immensely frustrating. But you know, it's 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 top level rugby, and we had some very good second rows there. We had seven, eight guys, and you know, a lot of the time, a lot of them were healthy, uh, and I, I really struggled to break through. You know, I think I definitely, I'd say within the first few months there, I improved exponentially from where I was beforehand. So uh, as far as the learning experience, it was absolutely necessary to get me to the point I am at today. You went on loan to Doncaster, then you signed on permanently for this season. And I think at the time you said game time was the most important thing, especially in a World yeah. Cup year. So was that an easy decision? Yeah, I mean, Doncaster, it was, it was a known quantity to me. You know, I know the forwards coach down here, I know the director of rugby. Um, I knew I was going to play a lot of rugby. And um, I, I just think that that's the most important thing. Like, that's how you get better. Like, you can train as much as you want. Like, I knew at Newcastle I was always going to be fit. Like, they always had me running a lot. But if you're not playing rugby and you're really not getting a chance to express yourself and to use the core skills that you work on during the week. So, yeah, the motivating factor was, you know, play a lot of tough set-piece oriented rugby and get yourself ready for, you know, the, the bigger stages. 
Correct me if I'm wrong, but the, your contract is up at the end of the season, I believe. Are you still thinking of sticking around in the championship, or do you have your eye on another challenge? I don't know. Uh, I, I think I have my eyes elsewhere. Um, uh, this Hopefully this doesn't come as news to anyone listening in Doncaster, but you know, the, 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 the coming stages for me you know, over the summer, hopefully some test matches, and then hopefully a World Cup, depending on my, my fitness and how, how well I'm playing. Um, you know, that's that that'll hopefully get me, you know, maybe someplace warmer. Who knows? <laughs> Little hints in there, subtle hints. Uh, <laughs> so this past weekend, a professional rugby game was played between Boston and New York. You're from the Bronx. And I know yeah. I know you've been asked this before. I'm going to take a slightly different angle on this. Uh, what would it take to get some Eagles back across the pond to play in that? You know, guys like yourself, we saw Ben Landry and Bryce Campbell playing in it last year, but now they've gone over to the championship. Do you think, is it mostly about financials at this point, or is the standard of rugby still a consideration? Uh, well, I have to correct the record. I'm, I'm not from the Bronx. I'm from the suburbs near the Bronx. Okay. Um, very different reality growing up. But, uh, um, yeah, I think, you know, it is becoming enticing, enticing to guys uh, to, to come back. You know, I, I watched the game between Boston and New York, and you can see it's it's, it's still not, not not the greatest standard of rugby, but you see the quality of athlete that's playing, and it's, it's really impressive. Um, so that's, I think, where the league is at now. Like, you have, you know, premiership quality athletes playing maybe national one-level rugby. Um, and I, I could definitely foresee a future where I'm, I'm playing for New York, maybe working part-time and, um, and enjoying my rugby immensely being in my hometown. Um, and I think that uh, maybe potentially after the World Cup, you'll see a lot of Eagles coming back. Maybe guys who are slightly older, who are you know more conscious about their families and you know, want to live at home and play professional rugby, which I think for a lot of us has always been our dream. Has James Kennedy at Rugby United in New York ever uh, inquired about your availability? <laughs> well, I actually I was, was ambushed by, uh, by James English in, in Chicago. Um, he seems like a really nice guy. I spoke to him a little bit about the potential for coming to New York in the future. Um, and it's obviously something that's on my mind. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I'd go there in a heartbeat if the situation's right. I've sort of made my mind up about where my, I want my career to go. And I know you're also a big fan of uh, San Francisco. You spent some time there. Uh, there's no Bay Area team in Major League Rugby yet. But looking down the road, you know how conflicting would a bidding war between a San Francisco and a New York team be for you? Uh, well, I know New York has the advantage. You know that's where my my mom and dad are. My brother's up up the road in Boston, so you know there's definitely that that hometown pull. Um, but uh, you know I did I did love living in San Francisco and uh, Berkeley. So if you know, if the time comes, it, it would be it would be a tough decision. <laughs> and I, I I won't keep you too much longer here um you have a unique professional qualification you have a master's degree i think it's in geoseismic engineering is that right yeah so yeah, uh, yeah, it's, uh, are really you going useful. are you going to be running the earthquake briefing for the team before japan oh yeah i'm sure i'll have to give some sort of uh, presentation on the boss about the seismic hazard i don't know where we are i'd love that <laughs> Pretty, pretty unique. I thought that was a um, very appropriate heading towards the World Cup. And so you actually used to live with Canadian prop Jake Ilnicki at Leeds. So there must have been some unique banter between the two of you, given you both play on opposite you know, teams for both club and country. I know you played at Newcastle together before, but now you're both at opposite teams. So there must have been some interesting conversations there. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it was it was during a you know, dark time for Canadian rugby. Um, you know, the last... 
three four months like their entire focus was qualifying for the World Cup so you know he was obviously his mind was you know, saturated with that sort of stuff and I was riding a high having just beaten Scotland so uh, I, I took it easy on him um, and now you know they're in and they'll be just fine I'm not worried about Canada rugby at all it's a good thing for for both our countries that they're playing in the World Cup and I think I think they're gonna be really successful in that pool but the banter's good. Like I, I, I haven't played against Jake yet, Leeds, Leeds versus Donny. But uh, hopefully, at the end of the month, December 29th, we have a big, uh, big game on Sky Sports, and hopefully, we're both playing in it. I was going to mention that December 29th coming up, so that'll certainly be interesting. You can catch up with each other, and maybe he'll be a, a lot happier now, having qualified. They, they, they beat uh, Hong Kong, and uh, to, to seal that win in the Repechage. Is, is there anything weird that Jake does as a roommate? Um, he, he's. Not really. He's extremely clean. He's like he's very very clean. I think I, I was the messy one. I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself too messy, but he's a very orderly roommate. Anything weird? Uh, not really. He eats the same thing every night. Cooks the same food every night, which would drive me crazy. <laughs> so obviously, you didn't get any cooking lessons from you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I tried. I tried. Oh, maybe I didn't try hard enough. We'll have to get Jake on here sometime to defend himself and maybe get some stuff on you. But uh, he loves it, man. He eats, he eats grilled chicken, stir-fried vegetables, and and whole wheat rice every night. That hardly sounds like something a prop would be eating. I know, I know. You'd expect him to, you know, I don't know, eating. I can't even think of what would a prop eat. Pancakes. Uh, lots of are there good like pastries and so on out there? Yeah, maybe pastries, meat pies. Who knows. <laughs> Before I let you go, what's the plan for the ARC? Are you going to be available for that? Are you going to be playing that at all? Um, I hope so. I mean, that's to be determined. Obviously, got to find a situation that satisfies my club as well as uh, my country. So, ideally, I'm, I'm I'm playing a few games in it. Is that just a negotiation between uh, your? I mean, obviously, November test window is one thing everybody goes for those, but for for like the ARC, where it's a little bit, uh, a little bit kind of when they might need you. Um, is that just a negotiation that goes on between between you and the club? Uh, yeah, between the club and you know USA Rugby and, and myself, um, you got to find sort of a happy medium. Um, I, th I think they are important games, especially since it is a World Cup year. So I'm sure every single one of us playing over in Europe you know, is going to want to get involved if we're selected. Um, so I'm sure the conversations with the DORs won't be easy. Well. I want to thank you again for joining us, Nick. Really appreciate your time as you're cooking, and you know, it's always a special time. And uh, we really look forward to following your road from now to the World Cup. Uh, thanks, Brian. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you. Appreciate it. Nick Savetta, the U.S. Eagles lock, who is about a foot taller than I am. Apparently, he's a decent cook. So if you happen to be in Doncaster, maybe crash his place for some eats so you know or, or or not anyway give him a follow you can find him on twitter or instagram at nick savetta pretty pretty uh pretty easy to remember that one so believe it or not we are already heading into a world cup year i guess time flies when your life revolves around an oval ball uh, anyway here to talk about what we've seen over the past few months and where we are headed is our very own paul tate all right paul we did have one last game in the November window, if we can call it that, December 1st, I suppose. Argentina loses to the Barbarians. Not a test match, but probably not the performance Mario Ledesma was looking for either. Another second-half collapse. The Pumas winless on their tour. How worrying is this heading into a World Cup year? 
if these are the players we're going to see in the World Cup, then we should all be extremely concerned. However, realistically, I think that it's going to be around six names from Europe combined with Haguada's players. And the team we saw against the Barbarians was probably uh, five of them you would expect to be in the 23, if you're lucky, from the starting lineup. So um, there were 10 changes, of course, from the game against Scotland the week before that. Uh, so I'm not overly concerned looking at it from a logical point of view, but losing this match was was just disastrous. They had been comfortably ahead. You cannot go from being three tri- tries up on your opponent to, to losing. I mean, and they, that happened for Argentina twice, uh, you know, in, in what was it, a two-month period against Australia and now against the Barbarians. So pretty shocking stuff from that that perspective, absolutely. And the commentators couldn't hide their surprise at seeing the uh, the Argentine scrum completely blown apart for the Barbarians and at the mall as well. I mean, and this was with Skulk Brits at Hooker, you know, uh, and, and a team literally thrown together in a couple days during the week. You know, if there was any doubt before, surely, as you say, surely this guarantees that we'll see European pros in the, the Pumas front row next year. Oh, definitely. The question is not if, it's it's who, how many of them. We know Juan Figash was the, is the starting tight head. Uh, he was just that good in his two matches that he played in the rugby championship. Uh, the other guys who, who came in from Europe, they were a hit and miss. Uh, realistically, we're, we're, we've got 10 months now. We're going to see Super Rugby, probably uh, countless different selections uh, for the front row. I, I don't expect to see... Uh, anyone other than probably Julian Montoya playing a lot. Uh, I, I expect to see various players on both sides of the front row. They've just got to do that realistically. Uh, there are, you know, to be honest, there are some some uh, some options there. It's not like we've only got three players uh, on either side. We've got many more than that, in fact. They're, they've got good options in terms of <laughs> the 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 amount of them but the quality of them well they just can't can't scrummage like the pumas of the past we know it's structurally uh motivated just the physical issues which happened we had paralyzed players in in argentina so the union decided to to try to decrease the impact in the scrums uh, that really complicated matters for the player development over the years in the recent years so we haven't been getting more roncieros ayers these guys just have not been emerging so it's pretty hard for a guy as good as Mario Desmond to take over a team which is just has that that base entirely missing. I mean, what a what a generational change almost. I mean, we've just seen Juan Pablo Orlandi and uh, Manuel Cariza announce their retirement, and you know we can see uh, Leguizamon Senatore kind of on the way out. But you know, looking at those guys, a guy like Orlandi who who wasn't even really a first choice prop ever, but certainly he had a, a fine career. In, in Europe playing, I mean, this was a time when European standard props were coming out of Argentina, you know, almost on a weekly basis. And here we go from there to this now. What a what a, a huge difference we've seen. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I think it will go away. The other problem which Argentina have in terms of the scrum development is that the the change of the roles of, of the engagement has has really not been adjusted to. I mean, Daniel Horcade was absolutely crucified by members of uh, former Pumas props, just saying this guy has no idea how to, to adjust the team. 
but I think this this will go away. Ledesma's going to fix it. He's actively trying to do so by having a new scrum coach come along. I think that's the best thing to do. I, I think at Haguad is in 2019, we're going to see uh, Gonzalo Quesada is going to really be, be, be experimenting a lot because we know he's going to be involved in the World Cup. He's not only the Haguadas coach, but he's assistant coach to uh, Ledesma. So, I mean, they're not going to be mucking around with this. And, you know, speaking about the Jaguars, one of the things we were talking about last week was looking in maybe, you know, looking at what's going to happen in the midfield, but but more importantly, the fly half spot. You know, Nicolas Sanchez is now going to Paris. He's with Stade Francais. Um, we've just seen some interesting names. Tomas Albornoz, Serafin Bordoli, and uh, Juan Leon Novijo all called up into an evaluation camp, maybe looking uh, for possible Jaguar's inclusion. Of course, Domingo Miotti played well for the Sud America 15. Did, did Joaquin Diaz Bonilla do enough to, to start on this team? Uh, he had a good game overall against the Barbarians. He was okay on, on tour when he played in the other matches. Uh, nobody, nobody else in, this, in the setup has actually had a start uh, in the position this year. So it's, it's his spot basically to lose. So yeah, all eyes are going to be on him for Super Rugby without question. The use of Nicolas Sanchez for so long has basically held back the development of, of other players that have been thrown into the Argentina 15 now and then, but no Super Rugby, no Pumas action. So realistically, uh, looking at the World Cup, it looks like the, the, the top three names are all playing in France. Nicolas Sanchez, Benjamin de Pachete, Pato Fernandez, they are the three names. Super Rugby going to have none of them involved. So uh, suggesting that there's a mountain to climb for Gonzalo Casada is basically an understatement, I would suggest. Uh, but I mean, they, they are being proactive, like you mentioned. They, they have this camp starting next week, which has players selected from nationwide. It's the Pladar system. Basically, all of the provincial unions have all gotten their top names and they've put together 37 players for this camp. It's only going to be props, hookers, second rowers, and fly halves. So, I mean, I was looking at who the fly halves are, and it's interesting because. They're, they're, it's not like there are two of them. There's a lot of them. So you've got uh, Tomas Albonos, like you mentioned, Theo Casvioli, Tomas Granesha, Joaquin Lames, Francisco Uriosha. I mean, the, all of these guys, only Granesha has rarely been in there uh, in the past. And he's often not been fly half, sometimes center. So it's interesting. And, and two other names, like, like you said, Serafim Bodori, he's back from Zebre, of all places in Italy, and, and also back from Italy. Juan Leon Novicio. I mean, are these guys realistically going to be guys for the World Cup? No, they're not. They are possibilities for Argentina 15, definitely. And that's why they're realistically there. I don't think they're they're going to be Haguadis players just because there are, there are other guys uh, ahead of them who are not even involved in this camp. Why? Well, because they don't need to be involved because they're basically established already. Domingo Miotti, one of them. You'd, you'd also say Juan Batista Darios ahead of these other guys, Santiago Gonzalez Iglesias, possibly, we don't know. Uh, in terms of fly half, it looks like he's very much out of favor, I would suggest. Other positions of note do exist, but from the camp itself, these are the guys uh, that I really took note of, the, these two fly halves back from Italy. We can't skip over this. Uh, Aguares released their new logo, brand new jerseys, uh, you know, certainly the new logo, very kind of seen NFL comparisons. I would uh, agree with that. What are your first impressions? 
I get why they, they did the change that officially said the players and the staff have said they want to bring a new identity. They want to leave basically behind the, the legacy of the, the first two years, even, even last year too. They want to move on. They want to be their, their new side. So, you know, good on them, I guess. But, you know, is it really necessary? No. There are many more important things to take care of. Like, where is the roster? I mean, we know what all the rosters are from many of the other teams involved. We don't know the Aguada's roster yet. So, come on, can we focus on other things and get, get them together? Yeah, time of transition in Argentine rugby, which is kind of a weird time to be doing it. This, you know, coming up to the World Cup. You know, talking of transition, Uruguay, kind of a mixed tour. They got thrashed by Fiji, but then they come out with the win against uh, Romania at the end. Are, are you feeling good about about where they're at heading into this big year? I think so. Uh, I mean, Uruguay. We're not going to compare Uruguay to Wales, Australia, the teams that they're going to be up against. We're going to compare compare them to to Los Tierros from past and from present. And realistically, look, I'm very happy. I think they've, they've come very, uh, very far in terms of the, the development. The individual players, a lot of them look much better, much sharper. The backs, I don't think are going to change in terms of the personnel. That, that isn't last as an injury. Uh, I think front row is, is interesting. Looking very good compared to prior years. Uh, interested in seeing if if Mario Sagari was going to be back. I mean, he's going to be uh, 33 for the World Cup. I mean, that that is basically a perfect age for a South American type. We've seen all these 33, 34-year-olds just excelling in, in World Cups. Can we have another one? Let's see if he can come back. I'm also excited about uh, the second row in general. I mean... Manuel Landeca, that's a player I'm really, really interested in. And he's a replacement by the looks of things. I mean, they're going to have a, probably Ignacio Dotti and Rodrigo Caprutega starting. So we're talking about a position in which, wow, that, that's, that's stacked by Uruguayan standards, no doubt about it. I think it's a really major area of strength for them. And they're going to have the most capped player of all time, Diego Magno. So pretty solid, I would suggest. In terms of overall breakthrough players, I see big things for Manuel Ardeo, but as a flanker, I don't think the hooker experiment should should continue. I understand why it was attempted, but I look at him and I look at Leandro Segredo and I say to myself, these guys had tremendous progress this year. And not only that, but hey, they could even upset the established order. I mean, could, is it possible that these two guys could even be starting for Uruguay in a World Cup match? Uh, maybe even Captain Juan Manuel Camavada is going to, you know, be in danger of not starting. It's, you know, it's possible. So the, I mean, these sorts of questions were were not plausible whatsoever uh, six months ago. So this is great to be able to 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 raise these doubts because that's just what they need. Uh, we don't need a, a World Cup in which they're scratching heads to. Uh, replace someone who took a took a bump with one World Cup in which they've actively got the guys ready. So I think they're far better positioned now than they were for the last World Cup. Tier two rugby blogspot put out a, a post just a couple of days about, ago about the uh, the draws at the World Cup, and you know we we talked about it last week. It's really unfortunate. Uruguay is going into this this great opportunity at the World Cup, and they got you know this nice rest between Australia and Wales. But the two games that they're really, you know, maybe we're hoping, well, you know, I guess we've seen Fiji's probably not going to be competitive, but so the Georgia one, they only get three days rest. So, I mean, 
it seems like they're almost going to have to play kind of a B side against Fiji and and bring out you know their their A side against Georgia in that kind of situation. Do you think? Before the match against Fiji, I would have said they were going to put absolutely everything into the first two matches and then you know see what they can do in the in the final two. I think that may have changed, as you say. I think Fiji realistically competing against them to the same extent which they did in Milton Keynes in the prior World Cup. I don't know if that's plausible. I would think Georgia, based on how they play and Uruguay's own strengths, that's the match definitely to target. So for, for, for Fiji, hopefully, if this logic does prevail, they will indeed be using mainly reserve players for that match. But, I mean, that's not necessarily such a bad thing because, like we, we just covered, looking at the back row, for instance, you've got handy players in there, with, and, I, and I don't realistically think that it would necessarily be changed altogether in terms of the quality of the makeup of the back row. It's different when we change positions. Fly half, for example, there's zero cover there. But this is uh, now something which Uruguay know about. They have experience in the Nations Cup, which has specifically had the, the same kind of turnarounds of three days. And they've, they've adjusted, they've won matches, they've changed personnel from one game to the next, targeted which game uh, is going to have which player involved. So I think that they're, they're definitely uh, well positioned to be able to, to make an impact. Also affected are the two North American sides. The Eagles, they had a very good year this year. Obviously, we, we kind of know what their first choice side is going to be. They're pretty established now. You know, they got yes. pretty reasonable breaks. Uh, England, France, Argentina are all, you know, five days rest, six days rest. But then that one match right at the end, you know, I, I'm sure they're targeting two wins in this. But to do that, they're going to have to be Tonga on only three days rest after playing Argentina. Now, Argentina heading into that game will have three days rest, a short turnaround. But maybe the Eagles can do that. But uh, but that'll be the thing heading into that for them, that three days rest against Tonga again. You know, it's so difficult for these tier two sides. World rugby makes all this, you know, noise about, oh, we're going to even up the schedule and here we get it again. And, and the games that, that these tier two sides have to win, they're doing on, on next to no rest. Yeah, I mean, and I agree 100%. John Kerwin's complaints in 2003, Augustine Peachout's complaints in 2003. He, when Argentina were eliminated, this is just how ridiculous the, the whole thing is. Uh Argentina played their fourth match, which was against Ireland, uh, on a Sunday. The following weekend, six days after that, Ireland played against Australia. Six days after. So Argentina's gone from the World Cup, eliminated, and the team they played against still has one match the following weekend. So that was poor. Added to that, the day in which Argentina played Ireland in that tournament, later that day was England playing against Samoa for their third match of the World Cup. In other words, England had played two matches by while Argentina had played four. That was just a horror show. You know, a total, total, appallingly put-together schedule. And, and P-Shot in the post-match, uh, I'll never forget it, in the post-match speech, he, he, he said to the commentators, he said, uh, you know, uh, I hope the organizers are happy that they've got the eight quarterfinals they wanted. He was, of course, referring to the former five nations and former tri-nations. And, of course, that's what happens. Now, related to what Kerwin had to say about this, this is a New Zealander who went on to, to coach Japan, coached Italy in this World Cup specifically. So, I mean, this, this is a, a, a guy, of course, who won the World Cup as a player. It's pretty hard to ignore what, what he said. And he simply said this, which was, 
he, they had they had uh, two weeks for four matches. It was worse than what Argentina had. And he, he said, I cannot prepare my players. It's just unfair. I cannot get them prepared from one game to the next because there's no turnarounds. And Italy, who did they play against? Well, they played against Canada, Wales, New Zealand, and Tonga. I mean, that's a highly complex uh, pull to have. Italy, the, the whole goal for them was to win three matches. Wales in the same pool. Well, what do you know? Wales had an extra week. So the, the point Pichot made applies to both Argentina and uh, Italy, but it also applies also to Tonga. They had just an absolutely horrendous schedule, just the same as that. So I think the United States, looking at 2019, look, they're certainly going to play well, and they have the means of, of winning over the hearts of, of, of fans on TV and at the venue against both England and France in their first and second match. But thereafter, like you mentioned, it's just really unfortunate that that World Rugby has been so poor in assembling the dates for the United States to have just the, the absolute minimum which they allow, which is three days between matches for them between Argentina and Tonga. Because what it means is that, well, they've got to pick and choose one of these matches. And we've seen this in the last World Cup. They did that. They had a game in London and then a game in, in Gloucester from South Africa to Japan. So what do they do? They pick the, the most minimal match of them, put everything into that, and they sacrifice the other. They're probably going to do that again. The question this raises is, would, let's say, Ireland, would, the, would Ireland ever accept this in November? Would Ireland accept playing Tonga and Argentina three days, the three rest, rest days in between? I highly doubt it. So this is the World Cup. I mean, we've got to have less excuses of... of, of the importance of marketing big teams at certain times, this needs to be addressed because there are other ways of, of making maximum financial returns. Just look at the FIFA World Cup and how they have Brazil playing their matches as a case in point. You know, perhaps no team is more harshly treated at this World Cup in Canada. Four games in 18 days. You know, we talked about last week that their games that they want to win will be the first one. Now, thankfully, uh, Italy, they have a full build-up. That's their first game, and Italy will have played one game before that, and they'll be playing on only three days rest, so that's maybe a little advantage. But the other game they got to win is against Namibia, and they play that game only four days rest after playing South Africa. So, you know, one of the criticisms of, of people when we suggest a 24 team or an expanded World Cup is people say, well, you know, the competitiveness is going to be screwed up. We don't want to see any more blowouts. Well, you know, if you don't want to see any more blowouts, you can't schedule a tier one match and then four days rest ahead of a match that they're actually trying to win. Because we know, you know, Canada now has to play a second string side against South Africa. And, you know, this is what happens. Oh, absolutely. And and just think about about this DTH fundamentals on the World Rugby website this week after Canada had qualified. He's saying what? He's saying he's going to finally have the chance to live his dream of playing against his country of birth at a World Cup. Will he play, though? <laughs> yeah. Would they use their star winger in this match? Really? I don't think so. I think if he plays, it's going to be because he goes and talks to Kingsley Jones and says, I've got to play in this match. And basically, that's the only way it's going to be because which coach in their right mind would want their star player playing in a match which is, is going to, basically going to be a throwaway because... You've got such a short preparation time for the next match, which is winnable. 
I mean, what would I do if I was the head coach? I would sit down with with the player and, and find out how much it means to him and, and see what we can come, what arrangement we can come to. Because realistically, <laughs> it's it's not looking likely that that he would play both of those games, at least not start both of them. So I mean, that's maybe where where Canada is going to have to come to in terms of a compromise. Yeah, you can, you can play against your your country of birth, but you're starting the next match, so you're on the bench for this one. Maybe that's what we're going to see. I don't know. It's just absolutely just ridiculous to think think about this. Come on, can we not just get these things sorted out? They are problems which are repeated and repeated, and they're only slightly improved on from one World Cup to the next. At least we're not seeing a team playing uh, South Africa and then Scotland uh, with three days rest like Japan had the last World Cup. Because just looking at it and thinking about it and, and the performances and how it happened, World Rugby literally set it up so so Japan could not win uh, their way to the quarterfinals because the comparative scheduling of the other side was just such a disadvantage to them. So even though Japan won their three matches, they, they didn't get there to the, to the final uh, the quarterfinals. That's the first time it's ever happened. It's exactly the same kind of uh, argument which people make in terms of, oh, we cannot expand the World Cup because it's always the same teams that win the pools. Well, it is. If the scheduling is poor, then, yeah, it's going to continue <laughs> being this way, unfortunately. So the dates are horrendous. Uh, five days between playing Italy and the All Blacks for Canada. Then I'm going to have South Africa four days before Namibia. So rather than complain about this, let's, let's make a plan. And a plan can be made accordingly. And I think it's definitely safe to say that Canada will take uh, – to the World Cup, a roster with the intention of fielding one team for the uh, the A matches, one team for the B matches. Would you agree with that? I, I think so. Yeah, they. I think they have to. I mean, you, you can't, like you say, there's no way you can risk DTH Van der Merva in a game with the, with an important one to come up just a few days later. He'll he'll be on the bench for that one. He'll get five minutes at the end, but there's no way they're going to start him or anybody. You know, anybody they deem. Uh, you know, absolutely essential. You just can't risk them. What happens if you lose a, you know, one of your key players, a Tyler Ardron, and you lose him against the, in an injury against the Springboks, and then you can't play him against Namibia? I mean, that's, it's just not going to happen. So I'm pretty sure that's the case. That's what's going to happen. So how do you feel about the difference between, let's say, Team A and Team B overall? Do you feel that there is a, a slight or a notable difference between the potential starting lineups if they were to, to go down that route? I think there's a pretty significant difference between the first string side and the second string side for Canada. Um, it'll, the gap will close slightly thanks to the arrows. Of course, uh, they're going to have, by the way, a press conference on Tuesday to confirm their coaching uh, roster. And it sounds like the entire playing roster as well. So um, that'll be good. And, and, you know, we'll, we'll get guys like Mike Shepard, who's going to captain the side. Uh, we saw the impact that he had in the World Cup repechage. And, you know, he's 29 years old, just breaking into the side in the second row. And he did really, really well. So guys like that will benefit immensely from a season with Major League Rugby. So that'll lift the side of it. But it's still, you know, we're still looking at, you, you got Tyler Ardron and, and an Evan Olmstead who are on that kind of super rugby level. And then you've got your DTH, Van de Merva, your Taylor Paris, uh, even a guy like Matt Evans who are really strong European players. Uh, we've seen Kyle Bailey emerge this year, have a really big year. He'll play in MLR, but he's definitely a guy I think we we think can could play in the European divisions. Um, and then you've got a bunch of guys who are kind of floating around at that MLR level, which is decent, but it's not quite there yet to compete. So I think there is a drop off. 
think it is a little bit steep right now. It's, it's getting in the right direction, but yeah, it's definitely not where it needs to be quite yet. I, I think Mike Shepard absolutely was was a standout. I, I liked him, Theo Salda, and Ben Lesage. They were the three new names, which I generally think could be prospects for 2019 in terms of, uh, you know, uh, leaving a mark. Maybe they're going to be uh, players to, to really make, make, make the jump. Uh, and that's that's good because, like like I mentioned, in terms of Italy, I'm not seeing so many names there coming through. I don't know about you, but I think they're they're stalled. Yeah, I think the problem with Italy, they got a really, they've done really well at the under twenty level for the past couple of years. So they they have some talent coming up, but I just think it's too soon. I think they're guys for the next World Cup. There's nobody I can see looking at that. I mean, they'll get uh, Minotzi, the Matteo Minotzi, the fullback um, back from injury. He's quite a good player, but. You know, realistically, they've they don't look that strong. Their their best players, the Parise and and Giraldini, you know, these kind of guys. The second row, you look at Zani is still there in the second row. Uh, I'm trying to remember the other second row, the Kiwi Dean Bud, the, the Kiwi second row yeah. as well. I mean, these guys are all aging. They're all well beyond their 30s. They're they're on their way out, so they're not really going to be peaking at, in time for this World Cup. You get a guy like Campagnaro who's outstanding, but there's not a lot of guys around his age who are doing well for them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, there there is an opportunity there maybe for Canada and, you know, other guys yeah. who, who might get a chance, like you say, Souter certainly looks very good. I think he'll have a, a very good year in MLR. Uh, Lesage isn't going to play. Major League Rugby has decided to stick with UBC and finish his degree first. So, you know, that might stall his progress a little bit. But there's guys like Connor Trainer and Kieran Hearn in the midfield anyways. Um, so they're probably okay there. A guy I'm looking at is uh, AJ Quatran, the starting hooker for the Arrows. Uh, you know, Canada has really struggled at that position, and he's a, a strong physical player. You know, he can tackle well. He's got a good set piece uh, when he's on his game. So I'm interested to see if he can put pressure on on Ray Barkwell heading towards the World Cup. Oh, Canada certainly need more options up front, definitely. Well, I would really love to see also Jeff Hasler back in the mix. I don't know, don't know uh, if that's possible. What, what would you say the, tr- the chances are of Hasler in the World Cup? Well, I don't know. Obviously, I think every Canadian would love to see <laughs> see that back. But, uh, you know, just hearing, you know, just talking to Evan Olmsted, you know, in the first podcast we had, he certainly wasn't very optimistic. So, you know, it doesn't seem like he's in any rush. You know, maybe something happens over Christmas where he starts to, you know, feel the, uh, I don't know, something tugging at him that says he needs to return. But uh, I'm not overly optimistic, to be honest. But, you know, if there is one position where I think Canada is reasonably well covered, it is on the wing with Vandermeerva, with Paris, with a guy like Kainoa Lloyd is very good. Dan Moore all of a sudden has signed for the Arrows, so that's really great to have him back in the picture. Even a guy like Cole Davis, who's with the seven side right now. Brock Stoller with the Seattle Seawolves. So there's cover there out wide. Um, you know, so, you know, obviously you want your big names, but if he's not going to come out, well, you know, what can you do? You just have to wish him well with whatever he wants to do and and move on, I suppose. Oh, absolutely. He, he tried. He tried his best. He had a successful career, and uh, you know, now he's looking at, at other other life options. So, I mean, is it good on him. Good on him. And uh, what do you what do you think about the newcomers for the United States? David Ayunu seems to have a tremendous future there. You know, I'm surprised that uh, a little surprised he came up as quickly as he did. Obviously, he was a player of potential, but to see how quickly he he broke into that Toulouse side, you know, 
uh, pretty amazing. And, you know, it's going to be really hard for them to leave him out of the World Cup. You'd have to think he's a very good chance of getting there. Now, he plays both sides of the scrum, which helps. Also, if, you know, uh, Lemos Sotelli also does. He plays both mm-hmm. sides. So they got options there. So they got they can fit him in. I think they'll they'll try. You know, the decision will be, you know, do they need to have a senior guy as that fifth proper guy like Ali Khalifi who plays both sides? Do they need to bring him or would they rather invest and take a new who? Or is there room for both, you know? Um, I, de- I don't think there is. I think they'll probably go with five props. So I think Ainu'u is looking pretty good right now. Uh, he's right in the edge. So we'll kind of see what happens there. Uh, Vili Tolutau had a stellar year in, in uh, <clears throat> Major League Rugby last season with the Seawolves. He's an awesome flanker. I'm interested to see how he's doing, although it looks uh, Sam Wuching has kind of jumped up ahead of him at the moment. But we'll see if Vili can get back in uh, maybe for the ARC and with the MLR season. You know, other than that, uh, I think we were both really impressed with Ruben de Haas, the scrum half. Um, just the way he's come through, not only as a, I think he's cemented his spot on the bench now, but I think he can actually put pressure on Sean Davies, a starter. I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Sean Davies, but, but uh, you know, de Haas looks really, uh, really impressively composed for a guy of his age, and certainly is a good problem for the Eagles to have guys like Davies and DeHaas competing for spots. And then, you know, you got Will McGee, Will Hooley, AJ McGinty all at fly half. So what a, what a great spot for them to be in. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, even, even Chris Wiles might be interested. He played <laughs> a week, a week or so ago. So look, great, great, great for the United States. Everything's looking on the up. I, you know, I can name some individual players, which I too think are, are going to have tremendous opportunities in the tournament. And, Hopefully this means that we're going to see four good matches from the Eagles, four 80-minute games. And uh, we've seen against Scotland and Ireland this year that, that they're much superior to from prior they were from prior World Cup. So it's exciting for them. I'm really looking forward to, to seeing how it all comes together. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, you know, I, I know they're targeting two wins, but personally, I just like to see them with four strong performances where they don't get wiped off the map. They don't, you know, they don't lose their focus, you know. You know, a game like that Ireland won, you know, the scoreline wasn't super great, but looking at it, the first half, first 45, 50 minutes were very competitive. So if they can at least keep it to that level and not get it stretched out beyond that um, in the games that they do lose, then I think it'll be okay. Is there anyone else from any of the other teams that you're looking as a potential breakthrough in the coming year, maybe from Argentina or, or anywhere really? Well, from Argentina, I think we, we may have seen uh, already a bit of what's to come because we had these under-20s players and uncapped players touring uh, in November. So uh, the outside center position is interesting for Jaguares anyway because they've got two centers in terms of Moroni and Orlando, but uh, the, the latter player has rarely been hit in this. He's had strong matches and, and also poor matches. So I'm interested in, in seeing what happens with Santiago Resino and Mateus Osacek uh, in uh, Super Rugby. I expect both of those guys to be involved uh, and not merely as, you know, uh, carrying the bags. I expect them to be to be involved. Argentina really needs more options uh, for outside center uh, to face tier one sides because uh, they, they don't have the, with the, the existing players they have, I would only say Moroni had a, you know, quality year and that's not enough you've got to have more options than that you've got to have two or even three to be going to work up so what about some uncapped names well 
Rodrigo Bruni. He had a, a good introduction to the game. Uh, I think he'll be there in Super Rugby. Mariano Romanini is another. Santiago Grondona, Francisco Gorisin. I think all these guys should be involved in Super Rugby. And from them, uh, possibly two of them could, could even go to the World Cup. Because, I mean, Ledesma's made it pretty clear he's not hanging on to, to aged players. He's investing in younger guys. Another guy is Santiago Montagner. I mean, if he wasn't injured, I suspect he probably would have been in Ledesma's team for, for November. Uh, why not? He, he was one of the tremendous performers from the Argentina 15. In fact, uh, looking at the scrum, yeah, it's, I think it's unacceptable how, how bad they've been, like we've mentioned. Uh, even with the bulk of Tomas Lavanini, Matias Alimano, and, and even Mariano Galas, they were, let's face it, they were taken to school in November. They were badly exposed. So a breakthrough player is going to actually possibly be a veteran from Europe. Francisco Gomez Codella, that is the, the guy to call upon. You want the scrum to work, he's your man. And just been tremendous in France for for Lyon, prior to that for Bordeaux. I mean, anyone who, who's been following the top 14 should be pretty clued on to, to this guy's abilities. He's tremendous as scrummager. He outperforms the, the same players who are playing loose head for France. Uh, so why isn't he there? Well, there are contracts issues with, that the UAR has with European clubs which come to the picture. It's easier to deal with, with specific clubs than, than with others, for instance. So, Juan Ficasha, well, he's going to be the starting tight head of the World Cup. Or is he? Maybe Gomez Codella could actually be the tight head and, and Figasha could even move to loose head. He did train there uh, during the, the rugby championship. F- trained. Did not play there, but did train there. So, that's an issue. Uh, uh, could actually see him reverting to loose head. I mean, and make no mistake, the Argentina's props in November, they're not good enough at scrummaging. Uh, of all of them, I would say Santiago Medrano is the most promising player. Uh, he, he's Aside from the scrum, he's excellent, in fact, excellent. And he's, he's realistically uh, above a number of European players now, including Ramiro Herrera, I would suggest. Medrano is well-placed uh, to go to the World Cup. Yeah, lots of names there to consider. Certainly some of the, the younger guys. I'm looking forward to go side chuck. Uh, uh, I like Gorasen and Grondona looks like a very good talent. So, well, that looks like a, a pretty good comprehensive overview of, of what we've seen and what we have in store. So this will be our last podcast of this year. We will, like uh, Pablo Matera, a little kind of rest and regroup heading into January. So we'll connect again there just ahead of the America's Rugby Championship. Looking forward to it. Merry Christmas, everybody. Paul Tate, and uh, you can find Paul on Twitter at Argentina underscore 2027. So so there you go. That's it. That's our, our last show for 2018. We've got five in the books now. Not bad. A little bit of a start. Uh, we've already got a couple good guests uh, lined up for January. Obviously, we'll be adding quite a few more. So for now, you can keep up on all the news on the website. Happy holidays. We'll catch you in 2019. And hey, don't forget about the Cape Town 7s this weekend. Uh, There's the outro music. That's my cue. I'm Brian Ray. Enjoy your rugby weekend.